Let us pray before we open up God's Word this morning. Lord, as we come under your Word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would go before us. Lord, that you would reveal to us the very truths of your Word. Lord, for many of us, we've heard these truths over and over again, so I ask that you would allow us, through your Spirit, to rediscover the power and the beauty of the Gospel. Lord, let us be reminded that it is the message of Christ that is not only necessary for those to receive faith in you, but it is also the gospel itself that allows us to grow more and more in dependency of you. And so, Lord, we pray that you reach us where we are this morning. Lord, let the word of God be spoken clearly and correctly, convictingly, and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would move in the midst of your people so that we would be greater worshipers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to begin a new series this morning, walking through the book of Galatians. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. We would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1074, 1074. The title of our series through the book of Galatians is The Gospel of Grace. When we think about this incredible book, the book to the churches in Galatia, more than likely it was the Apostle Paul's first writings. Uh, this would have happened approximately 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, so this is an early writing to the early church. Uh, oftentimes people will refer to the book of Galatians as the cliff notes to the book of Romans because there is a lot of connection and the Apostle Paul unpacks uh, more of that in the book of Romans. And yet it's at the very heart of the book of Galatians that we find this, that as followers of Christ, we are under grace, not the law, and that we are saved by faith and not by works. Now there's a lot to unpack in that very statement. And so we're going to take several months, to be honest with you, to walk through what does it mean to be at, under grace, not law, to be saved by faith and not by works, because there is a great tension with that statement. It is a gospel tension, and so we want to come before the Lord, humbly before him, submitting to his word, understanding what it means to be saved by grace and to live by grace, because if we aren't careful, we will miss out on and lose sight of the very power of God's amazing grace. It amazes me that no matter how much we sing about God's grace, it never gets old. And there's a reason for it. It should not get old. It should not grow stale. So my heart and my prayer for us as we study through this amazing book is that many will come to faith in Christ and secondly, those of us who are already in Christ, we will grow more and more in our dependency on God's amazing grace. So we're going to start our study this morning looking at those first five verses, kind of unpack uh, where we're headed over the next several months. But we begin uh, in verse one, we'll read the passage all the way through and then we'll start unpacking it. The scripture says, Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Most often when we open up a new book in the Bible, uh, we look at the first couple sentences and we determine really very quickly is, do we want to keep reading or do we want to skip down a little bit? As an example, when you open up to Matthew chapter 1 and you get the genealogy of Christ, 
most of us will not go through the names that are very difficult to say and very difficult to sometimes trace back to where they are in Scripture. But it's in the genealogy of Christ that we see beautiful truths that help us unpack the importance of Matthew's account of the gospel. The same is true for Galatians, for the book of Galatians. If we don't pause for just a moment and look at these first five verses, we'll miss the thrust of what the Apostle Paul is teaching, not only to the churches in Galatia, but what he's teaching us today. There are amazing truths in these first five verses. This is really the meat that unleashes everything for the rest of our time in this study. It tells us in the first two verses who the author is and the credentials of that author. We begin again in verse 1, in the first part of verse 2. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So very clear, the scripture says what? That the apostle Paul is the author. He, Paul the, is the author of this particular book. Now we must be reminded that Paul didn't start off with that name, right? He was Saul, right? He came from the tribe of Benjamin. And if we remember the first king, the first earthly king that the people of God elected, if you will, was Saul himself, King Saul, back in the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of heritage with this particular name. And so Saul, or Paul, was given that name from birth, Saul. And it's not till Acts 13, verse 9, that Saul's name changed to Paul. Now that's significant because of where Paul's mission work was originally located. And that's why his name was changed. And we'll see that as we study in the next couple weeks, really Paul's testimony. Uh, what do we know about Paul? We know a lot about Paul from Scripture, but, but there's been a lot of debate on uh, certain things about Paul, right? You, you read about the thorn in the flesh that was given to him, and the question is, what was the thorn in the flesh, right? And so there's a lot of speculation on what the thorn is, and a lot of it relates to uh, his, his body, if you will. And, and one of the second century writers wrote this concerning Paul. Paul is described as a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. He had a hooked nose and a unibrow. That was, it's one, a brow that met, but I call it a unibrow, right? And yet, at the same time, he had the face like an angel. Now, that is pretty interesting to me. Like, you have this person, but yet, the, script, or the second century writer says he had a face like an angel. Now, we don't know if that description is entirely true, right? We don't know. But what we do know is that in 2 Corinthians, there is evidence that, that the Apostle Paul was being attacked uh, because of his stature, right? That there was, he was being made a fun of, essentially. But what we do know in this passage is that the Scripture says that Paul was an apostle. Now, in a general sense, every single follower of Christ is an apostle. Like, we are messengers sent into the world, right? But that is not what the scripture is referring to here. It's not talking about this general sense of apostle. No, here it's talking about apostleship. Apostleship. Now, it's a specific calling and commissioning that Jesus Christ himself had on specific disciples. And we see this being uh, given to us in the book of Luke. When Jesus first calls some of his disciples as his apostles. We see this in Luke 6, 13. The scripture says, And when the day came, he, speaking of Jesus called his disciples, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So these apostles, this apostleship, are given to those who are specifically chosen and called and commissioned by Jesus, by himself. And it's through that apostleship calling that Jesus put on their lives that we have the New Testament today, right? So this is a very specific calling. And one of the issues in Galatians 
as we study it, is there are a group of people who we call Judaizers who were attacking the apostleship that Jesus gave to him. And the thought pattern was this. If you can attack the authenticity of the messenger, then you can attack what the messenger was teaching, right? So the idea is if you can discredit the messenger, then you can discredit the message itself. Undercut Paul's apostleship, then you can undercut the message that was being taught. And yet it was the apostle Paul who was commissioned by Jesus himself. But it wasn't the same as the other apostles. Jesus was, or Paul was commissioned by Jesus after Jesus resurrected. In fact, on that Damascus road when Paul met Jesus for the very first time and was saved, uh, Jesus speaks to Ananias who was there and says this in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to him, talking about Ananias, Go for he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. So Paul's calling as an apostle is very, very unique, right? He's, he's saved by Jesus after the resurrection, and he's called by Jesus to be an apostle after the resurrection as well. That's part of Paul's own testimony, and we'll see this more in a couple weeks, but we see a glimpse of this in 1 Corinthians 15.8. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this, this appearing of Jesus was very instrumental in Paul's life. And not only did Paul see Jesus face to face, which is one of the requirements to be a, an apostle in this sense, it's also, it has to be the will of God, right? It has to come from Jesus himself, and that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by what? By the will of God. So this isn't the will of man. This isn't man's choosing. This is what God chose for me, right? And you can almost sense Saul in Acts 7, right, when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr, that we know of, Saul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he comes to faith in Christ. He's commissioned by God for a specific mission. So we have these credentials that are given to us concerning the Apostle Paul from Jesus Christ himself. And the question is, what does Paul do with these credentials? He goes on mission, right? That's what the book of Galatians tells us. In the second part of verse 2, the scripture says, to the churches of Galatia. The churches in Galatia more than likely were, refers to that first missionary journey that Paul and uh, Barnabas went on together. Uh, this, would have, this journey would have lasted approximately 12 to 18 months. I'll show you a map so you can get an idea of where we're talking about. So you see that dark green area right there in the middle of the map. So on the, I'm trying to see from your perspective, on the bottom right hand side there in the, it says Antioch where that blue line starts. So Antioch was the sinning church, right? So that's important. And this is Antioch of uh, Syria, because there's another Antioch that we'll see in just a moment. So that journey began uh, there in Syria, and you can see where it goes to Cyprus, and then it goes uh, up to Perga, and then it gets into Galatia. Galatia was one of the largest provinces in the Roman Empire, and you can see where that journey uh, begins there in Antioch and Pisidia, and then Iconium, and then Lystra, and then Derby, and then they just, they're like, all right, we need to go back and check things out, right? So they swing back around, and they end up back where? They end up back into where their host church was. Now, here's what we find in Acts 13 and 14. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that first missionary journey, you can go there and you can read it. And the, here's the commonality. All throughout all those areas in Galatia, the gospel was preached and people were saved, right? That's important. But there's something else that happened. In most of those places, many Jews got angry, right? They were mad at what was being taught. 
In fact, there were multiple occasions where they were being, Paul and Barnabas, Paul specifically, was being, trying to be, they were trying to kill him. And so that's why they were fleeing. They were going to other places in Galatia and still preaching the gospel. Now, why were, those, why were they so angry? Because the message that was being taught. You see, in order to be right with God, in their minds, wasn't dependent on the grace of the gospel. It was dependent on works, specifically the works of the law of Moses, that you, you had to hold to that standard in order to be right with God. And so what you have is you have Paul and Barnabas going through these areas, preaching the gospel, church plants are happening, and the second they leave, you have other people coming in and say, oh, no, 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 that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. And in fact, that, that is something that happens all throughout church history, even today. In fact, when the Apostle Paul is sitting down with the elders in the church in Ephesus, he, he writes of this very thing in Acts 20, verse 29 and 33, he says, or 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise, arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the same issue that was happening in the first century is the same issue that is happening today. And it's a reminder to us that Satan will do absolutely anything and everything to hamper the advancement of the gospel. He will do it in this church. He will do it in your life. He will do it in your own home. But praise be to God, the gospel is never hindered. The gospel continues to go forth. So it's important for us, and this is why Paul is so passionate to the church in, churches in Galatia, do not lose sight of the supremacy of the gospel within the community of faith. And that's why he gets very clear. He doesn't have a blessing in this particular letter. When you read most of Paul's letters, he'll have his credentials, if you will, and then he'll have some blessing to the church, and then he'll get into the doctrinal stuff, and then he'll get to the application. He doesn't do that here. He talks about his credentials, and then he goes straight into the doctrine, right? Now, that's important because there's an urgency here. Because as quickly as they left, wolves were coming in. And he talks about the importance, the centrality of the message of the gospel. And it's found in five incredible words found in the first part of verse 3. Grace to you and peace. You see, if we have the temptation to skip down and begin reading in verse 6, we'll, we'll miss those five important words. Grace to you and peace. It's the message of the gospel of grace and peace that is not only important, again, for those who don't know Christ, but it's also important for us who already do know Christ. It is the very lifeblood of the church. And so what do we find in that awesome phrase, grace to you and peace? First, we find that the root of the gospel, the root of the gospel is grace. Grace is one of Paul's favorite words. In fact, he, he used the word grace over a hundred times in his writings that's more than double all the other writers combined. So this was a very important word for him. Grace is one of those words that stands the test of time. It's the undeserved and unearned favor of God towards us. Now notice the benefits of God's grace for just a moment. As a follower of Christ, we have grace for our old life, right? We have grace for my old life. Notice the willingness of Christ and the purpose of Christ. In verse 4, the scripture says... He gave himself for our sins. Christ willingly gave his life on the cross for the purpose of saving us from our sins. And what was that willing act? Again, to save us from our sins. Both the will of Christ and the purpose of the cross are both acts of God's amazing grace. 
We must never forget who we are apart from Christ. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Christ, says it like this in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, right? We've rebelled. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us in our sin were once straying sheep. That's the old life for every follower of Christ. And in God's gracious act, he willingly laid down his life for the iniquity of us all. It was a great divine donation. Now think about that for just a moment. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. He donated his life for us. That's a beautiful picture. Jesus donated his earthly life so that we can have eternal life. It's God's grace for our old life. Now how is that true? Well, Paul speaks of this in Romans 3. We studied this passage uh, a few weeks ago. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's an important word. It means we're made right with God. How? By his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation that is a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. So that's the only means to receive it, right? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So God's not just sweeping our sin under the carpet, right? It had to be dealt with. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love it that Jesus is not just the justifier, but he is the one who brings justice to the Lord. Jesus on the cross through his shed blood satisfied the wrath of God and the justice of God in one glorious redemptive act. And you and I, by God's grace through faith, have received that tremendous blessing. He stood in our place. Jesus paid it all. And when did he pay it all? Did he pay it all right before we had family pictures and everybody's looking good and everybody's looking nice? No, the scripture says in Romans 5a, but God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, in the midst of our sin, Christ died for us. So we have tremendous grace for our old life. And that leads us to this second benefit of the root of the gospel of grace, grace for my new life in Christ. So the old is gone, the new has come, right? And this is the beauty of God's grace. God's grace isn't just limited to the forgiveness of sin. God's grace also gives us the power for transformation. The apostle Paul says it like this in the second part of verse four. He says, to deliver us from the present evil age. That's, a, that's a, an important phrase there. God's grace in the gospel frees us to live as we were created to live in Christ. So there's freedom here, right? And that's what we're going to find in the book of Galatians, that there is tremendous freedom in Christ. The word delivered here is a very forceful word. It means to snatch out of, to, to rescue. It's the picture of uh, the Israelites when they were rescued from the, the hands of Pharaoh. So this is a very important word, and the scripture says that we are rescued from this present evil age. Now, what is that present evil age? Well, it's the time from when Adam sinned in Genesis 3 to the second coming of Jesus when he comes again. And guess what? Where are we living today? We're living in that present evil age. Now, when we think about the present evil age, we need to be reminded that creation, God's creation, isn't evil. The world system is evil right? It has been impacted by sin. How we think, how we act, all those things have been impacted by sin. And who, who has dominion today in this present evil age? Satan himself. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, he's talking about unbelievers, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 
who is the image of God. God's word says the system of this world is dominated by the evil one. And it doesn't take much to conclude that is true, right? Look at what's happening in the world today. Every place that we look is being marked by what? The evil system of this world. But by God's amazing grace, we have been rescued. We have been set free from that system. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have, uh, we're not impacted by that system, right? We still are impacted by that system every day. But the scripture says that we have been freed from that system. We have been rescued from that system. Why? Because we have been freed from the bondage and power of sin in this world. This means that we now have a choice, right? Paul speaks of this to the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 1, he, speaking of God the Father, has delivered us. That is, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, speaking of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because of the grace of God, we have been given new life. This means we have a new master. We are no longer under the dominion of Satan, right? No longer under his control, We are under the dominion of Christ. We have a new king, King Jesus. Do you know today as a follower of Christ, in the midst of this evil world system, you have a choice. You have a choice. Every moment of every day through the Holy Spirit of God, you have a choice to either live by the Spirit or live in the desires of the flesh. I have a choice if I'm going to honor the Lord, if I'm going to commit sin. Yes, we will face temptation to sin all the time, right? But now, because of God's grace, we have the power not to sin. God saved his people not simply to rescue us from hell, but also to conform us to the very image of his son. That is so important. And we're going to see that unpacked in the book of Galatians. The apostle Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 24. He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and do what? And to live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. Prophet Isaiah said that. Remember in Isaiah 53. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, if we had no substitute in our place, we have no hope for holiness. But guess what? One did stand in our place, Jesus Christ. And because of him, we bear the very righteousness of Christ. Because Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross through the Holy Spirit of God and by the grace of the gospel, we can follow in his footsteps. Do you see the grace of God for our new life in Christ? We have new power in Christ. We are no longer under the bondage of this world. We have been graciously rescued. And here's the issue. We look at what's happening in the world. We, we consider the things that are happening in our mind, in our emotions, in our heart, and we feel like we're just defeated. You're not defeated. You are victorious in Christ. That's why abiding is so, so important. Because if we're not abiding in Christ, we will give way over and over and over again to the desires of the flesh. And not only will you face the consequences in your life, but those that are around you will face the consequences of your sin. We have new power in Christ, so we need to stop living as defeated Christians. You need a new mindset. You and I, we need a daily new mindset. Yes, in the world that we live in, it's dominated by what? A world system of evil that opposes everything about God. But you and, in, you and I in Christ, we've been rescued from that. We have been given a new mind in Christ. And one of the ways that we worship the Lord is having our mind renewed in him. Paul says this in 
Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You hear Paul's plea to, to the Christians, stop buying into the system of the world. Anchor your life and your emotions and your mind and your will into the will that God has for you. By his grace, prove in practice how you live that his will is good, perfect, and all satisfying. The root of the gospel is grace. The fruit of the gospel is peace. Peace. Peace means far more than just the absence of conflict. Because guess what? We have great conflict, right? It means that we have, first and foremost, peace with God. Peace with God. There is no greater peace than knowing that you have peace with God. This, too, is an act of God's grace. Without a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will never, ever, ever have peace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified, made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were once enemies of God, but because of the finished work of Christ and our faith in him, we're no longer enemies. We have peace with God. We are declared right with him. The war is over. Our our conscience is clean. That is a huge praise moment. We are no longer under what? Condemnation, right? Amen. Hebrews 10, says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with an, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? He is faithful. He is faithful. We stand today. As followers of Christ, based on the finished work of Christ, at peace with God. You see, our assurance isn't in our good works. Our assurance is in the finished work of Christ. Not only do we have peace with God, we also, by his grace, we have access to the peace of God. Peace of God. Now, it's important for us to understand that we will never forfeit the tremendous blessing of having peace with God. Never. But we can, we can not live with the peace of God. Right? Now, there are two primary reasons why that happens. One is because of unrepentant sin. Uh, the second reason uh, for that is uh, sometimes we, we doubt the character of God, right? and so we want to take control over things. And you know, Think about your life for just a moment. When, when do you find that you don't have the peace of God? It's probably most often in those moments where you have unrepentant sin or you're trying to take control of your life when God is the one who is in control. Now, speaking of uh, peace, uh, the peace of God, Paul teaches us uh, some very important truths concerning the peace of God. He says in uh, Philippians 4, this is well-known scripture again, but hopefully it'll be uh, helpful for our souls today. It says, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command, right? Don't be anxious about anything. In other words, don't believe the lies. Stop distrusting the very character of God. Because when life happens, and it will, and you lack control of a situation, you begin to doubt the character of God in, in your feeble attempts your futile attempts. We try to do what? We try to control and try to do all these things and we find ourselves not living in a place of peace, but living in a place of great, tremendous anxiety. So how do we combat that? One word, pray. Pray. That's what Paul says. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Think about supplication. Humbly, humbly ask God for what you need, Right? Pray in such a manner that expresses your utter dependency on him and your utter trust in God's character. Even though he may not answer it the way that you want, you're trusting what? The very character of God. And do so with thanksgiving. So there's a praise to this prayer. Praise God for the assurance that we have. 
in salvation, in provision, in protection. It's a great reminder that when life stinks, and it will, let praise be your voice. That's why it's important to read scripture. You go back to the Psalms and you read the harshness of life, and yet you see faithful followers of God praising the Lord in the midst of that. So prayer and praise. Through prayer, what does what does God do with that anxiety? Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when we're living in anxiety, we have a divided mind, we have a divided uh, emotions. And yet with the peace of God, what happens? We have, we have wholeness of mind and we have wholeness of emotions. And because this is true, the Apostle Paul says what? In verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Part of the benefits of God's amazing grace through the fruit of peace is what? Is that in all aspects of life, we have the opportunity to anchor our thoughts and our emotions on Christ himself. Everything in verse 8 is a reflection of Jesus himself, the work that he has accomplished. And that's Paul's heart. For the church in Galatia, it's his heart for us today. It was his heart to the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 3, uh, 15, he said, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be what? Thankful. The word rule there means to umpire, right? How many of us need a new umpire in our life today? You're walking through difficult circumstances. What's been the umpire? The outcome of the circumstances? How you're going to get through the circumstances? No. Let the umpire of your life be the very peace of Christ. Please hear the heart of the gospel. Jesus is inviting us to his peace, not just peace with God, but to experience the peace of God. Matthew 11, 28 and 30. Listen to the personal pronouns of what Jesus is doing. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the importance of those five powerful words? Grace to you and peace. All of this is the will of God. It comes from him. That's why Paul says in the first, second part of verse 3, he says this, this gospel message, the, the root of grace and the fruit of peace, it's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was his will, verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. Now, we need to be reminded at this moment that this precious gift of the root of grace and the fruit of grace came at great expense. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of Jesus, he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is talking about? God's great pleasure isn't in the suffering of his son. God's great pleasure is in what the suffering son accomplishes, right? And so today and for eternity, for generations to come, for those of us in Christ, when we reap the root of blessing, of grace, and the fruit of peace, who gets praise, who gets honor? Jesus Christ gets honored. That is the great pleasure that the Lord has. That leads us to our third and final truth real quickly. The gospel is for God's glory and our good. So it's not just for our good, but ultimately it's about God's glory. Verse 5 says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When we think about the root of grace and the fruit of peace, 
there's no room for pride, right? There's no room for arrogance because we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't secure it, but it's given to us in Christ. By his grace, our old life is gone. Our new life has come. By his grace, we have peace with God and we have access to the peace of God. That should be worthy of praise and honor every single day that we live. Listen to the heart of Paul's prayer to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 3, and we'll close with this. Now to him who is able, man, just let that sink in. Now to him, him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let that be our praise today. Do you realize how blessed you are as a child of God to have the root of grace in your life and the fruit of peace in your life. Both of these gifts from the Lord. What beautiful blessings we have today. To those who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that as we study God's word and you hang with us as we study God's word, the Holy Spirit of God will reveal to you that you are, that you are what? That you, are, that you can be under grace, not under the law saved by faith and not by your word.